As we continue here through the book of Ephesians, we turn from the, the outpouring of Paul's praise to God with regard to the blessings of salvation, and now he uh, pours out those same sort of ideas in a prayer for the Ephesians. And as he prays for them, I, I think that we should ask ourselves a couple of questions. What is it that he prays for, and what is it that he's most thankful for? The reason that I think those are important for us to consider is that the things that we are most likely to pray for tend to reflect the culture in which we live. Our culture tends to be very materialistic, and so oftentimes our prayers most naturally turn toward those sorts of subjects. Uh, certainly nothing wrong with praying for jobs and praying for physical needs, but I think we find it most easy to pray for those things and not to pray for the sort of things that Paul prays for for the Ephesians here at the end of chapter 1. Along the same lines, what are we most excited for about the people that we know? Are we most excited that someone is no longer sick, that they get out of the hospital, that some particular affliction that they were struggling with is over? Or are we most excited, as Paul is here in this section, about a testimony of faith that is demonstrated in their lives that spills over and is demonstrated also toward others around them. And so he begins here in verse 15, for this reason. So we need to ask ourselves, what is the reason that he's referring to? There's a couple of possibilities. One is what he said just in verses 13 and 14, that you Gentiles, you Ephesians, also have believed and been sealed by the Spirit to the praise of God's glory. Or, possibly, it refers all the way back to chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And the reality is, those ultimately are talking about the same thing, right? Whether he's referring specifically to the Gentile salvation or broadly to God's work of salvation among all people, for this reason, God's salvation among all people, and particularly among you, is the reason that I am now praying for you in this way. What does he pray for them? He prays for them because he's heard of their faith. And this faith exists among them, their love for all the saints. Uh, turn over, if you would, to Colossians chapter 1. Simply because I think... Um, this is a fairly common thread in the way that Paul begins his letters and in his attitude toward the churches that he has ministered to. If you notice in Colossians 1, verse 3 and 4, we give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. That's what Paul's going to say in 1.16 of Ephesians. But he says, Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, and the love which you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel. So, turn back to Ephesians chapter 1. This is a common thing that Paul expresses toward the churches to whom he writes. He is thankful for their faith in Christ and for their love for one another. We saw this in 1 Thessalonians as well. Uh, Paul is thankful for the demonstration of faith and for the expression of it in their love for one another. 
And so what is his response to these blessings of salvation and the hearing about their testimony, both faith and love? Verse 16, I don't cease giving thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. This is not sort of a mindless repetition that Paul is doing here. Paul is saying they're constantly coming to his mind, and he is constantly praising God for the work that God has done in and among them. And I think for us to understand why this was so important to Paul, we have to think of some of the other things that he said in his letters. For example, he often talks about this idea that I hope that my work among you has not been in vain. He says that in a number of his letters. And, and what would that look like for Paul? It would not be a matter of him having failed to preach the gospel because we know that he did that faithfully. It would be a matter of people appearing to receive the gospel and then turning away from it. If he thought that God had done a work in a particular place, and then he hears later on, perhaps at a time when he's in prison and can no longer go and encourage that church, that everything has fallen apart and they've forsaken the gospel message that he proclaimed, his work would have been in vain. And so on a positive sense, why is he so excited and so encouraged here? Because that's not the case. Because their faith is being shown to be real, that they have a genuine faith, and they have a genuine love and concern for one another. And so this results in a constant prayer for them on their behalf. But not just thanking God for what he has already done, but asking God for what he will yet do. What does he ask God to do for them? He asks God to give them a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. And when he says this spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, he is, as he will explain in verses 18 and 19, desiring that they will know certain things about God and not just know them as facts, but see the significance of them and not just see the significance of them, but that they will in turn transform their lives. And so the reason that this is important is that it is possible, I think, for us as Christians to begin to see what God has done in our hearts and lives. We saw some of those things in, in verses 3 through 14. What are some of the blessings of salvation? Adoption, forgiveness, participation in God's plan, receiving an inheritance, God's glory flowing out of all that work that he's doing in and among us. We, we see a little bit of that, but is there always room to understand that better? Is there always room to keep returning to that and keep being amazed by it and our hearts being stirred to say, wow, what has God done? I was a sinner, and God took me from being a sinner and his enemy and under his just wrath to being someone who's now part of his family. Someone who has a standing in Christ, but also with Christ. Because Christ is going to receive an inheritance, I will share in that inheritance. Because Christ has been raised from the dead, I will be raised from the dead. Because Christ has died to sin, I can have victory over sin. This connection with Christ, this adoption by God, it's possible for us to lose sight of that as we go through our daily lives. And so Paul's desire is that God would continue to make them understand 
all of the blessings and the beauty of the salvation that's been provided for them in three specific ways. The first thing, he prays that the eyes of their heart may be enlightened. And that seems like an odd expression to us, right? Eyes, heart, two different things, right? So what he's meaning there is not your physical heart that pumps blood, but your inner person. And by eyes, that by which we perceive truth. So in your inner person that you would see what it is that God is doing. Perhaps standing in contrast to this would be what we see when Paul writes to Corinthians. He says, the God of this world has blinded the minds and the hearts of those who do not believe. In contrast, those of us who have received Christ, our eyes have been opened. We now see Christ. We are able to perceive these spiritual truths. And so Paul prays that they would know three things. First of all, what is the hope of his calling? What is the hope of his calling? When he says the hope of his calling, it's something that is yet future. Paul makes the point when he's also writing the Corinthians. Faith and hope will eventually pass away. Why is that? Because faith is confidence in something you haven't seen yet. Hope is looking forward to something you haven't seen yet. But when the thing that you're looking forward to, the thing that you're trusting in, is right there in front of you, what do you not need any longer? You don't need hope, you don't need faith. So the hope of their calling is going to be fulfilled when they are in God's presence. But until that is true, he wants them to see that this hope is true and strong and not an empty hope. We express hope about things like the weather, right? I hope it's a nice day today. Things about which we have no control and often no confidence, right? Even if the forecast says it's going to be nice tomorrow, we're like, it's Michigan. Maybe it will be, maybe it won't. But this is, as it will be described in other places in Scripture, a strong hope, a confident hope in God's calling. When it says God's calling, what does he mean by that? He means that brought you over here and now because you belong to him you have an expectation a hope a looking forward to all of the other blessings connected with salvation some of which are still future that we saw especially toward the end of 1 3 to 14 last week so that they would know what is the hope of his calling um Peter says this about it in 1 Peter 1. Let me read that for you briefly. Peter says in 1 Peter 1, 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter's talking about those same three things that Paul's talking about. Hope, inheritance, and God's power that secures both of them. So let's look at that next thing there, the, the idea of the inheritance. Not only does he want them to know what is the hope of their calling, God's calling of them, but also what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. 
there's two ways that people have taken this. One is that the church is Christ's inheritance, and so we're going to be part of the inheritance that God gives to Christ, or that in connection with Christ, we receive the inheritance of eternal life among or in or with all the saints. And I think the second one probably fits better here, even though it is true that, as it says in Ephesians 5, God has taking is taking the church to be a possession granted to Christ for to belong to him I think the emphasis here is but we're also going to receive things connected with that right and so what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in or among the saints this is connected with what the inheritance is so he says in verse 11 we have obtained an inheritance and then he says in verse 14 that the Holy Spirit is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession. So we have this sort of mixed feeling that it's something that we have obtained and it's something that we will obtain. And like we were talking about last Sunday night, how do we reconcile those two things? And I think the answer is tied to the parallels of how an inheritance works here. If you are five years old and you're in a family that has huge holdings of land and houses and whatever else, you are the heir of that, right? But you don't have it when you're five, right? So you possess it, but you haven't received it. It's not a perfect parallel, but there are parallels between that sort of concept and the reality that while we genuinely have eternal life in the sense of John 17, 3, this is eternal life that they may know Jesus Christ and God the Father, we certainly don't have the full benefits and um, experience eternal life but we have not yet fully received it because of the being of God's presence freed from sin all of those things so what are the riches or the glory of this inheritance that Paul wants them to know you have eternal life what does that look like well he's going to talk more about it in chapter 2 you were dead but now you're alive you were under God's wrath, and now you're part of God's family. But even what we've already seen here in chapter 1, you have redemption, you have forgiveness, you have constant outpouring of God's grace. You were sinful, but now God's transforming you to be holy. All of these things are part of the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. But Paul doesn't just want them to know what is the hope of his calling, this strong and confident hope that they're looking forward to, this inheritance that they can ponder but have not yet fully received, but also, verse 19, the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. What does God's power look like? Think back to our study of Genesis. earth is formed. God 
seas are put in their place, and the skies are framed, and the animals come forth, and before that, the trees and the birds and the fish, all of creation, God forms by his power, merely by speaking it into existence. We're amazed when we build a cabinet and it's not crooked, right? From existing materials, following someone else's direction, using tools that make it really easy. God didn't need any of that. He didn't need the tools. He didn't need the materials. He just spoke and it was there. So what is God's power like? God's power is the power that started all of this in the beginning. But what Paul specifically emphasizes is that God's power does two things. First, he raised Jesus from the dead, verse 20. Think about the power that is involved to restore life to that which is dead. There are people who claim to have that power, but the reality is none of us can do that. When we, when we talk about you know, uh, emergency personnel, and they say, we say he brought that person back, what do we really mean? They were almost gone, and they stopped that, and they were able to provide the oxygen and the other things that they needed so that they would survive. What did God do with Jesus? Jesus is dead for three days in the tomb, and God raises him from the dead. There's a whole bunch of other truths that we don't really have time to get into this morning about what all that means in terms of can God die? No, but Jesus puts himself in human nature, human body, and that piece is able to die. But the focus here is not on all of those behind-the-scenes kind of details. The focus is on here's someone who is dead, and now they're alive again. And that's the great truth that we look at in connection with Easter here in about a month. But the reality is God's power is demonstrated quite clearly in the raising of Christ from the dead. Now, certainly Jesus being raised from the dead is not the first example of someone being raised from the dead, right? We tend to think, who's the first person raised from the dead? Well, Lazarus. Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. But even think back to the Old Testament. There's the widow's son that Elijah raises from the dead. There is the fellow who, when Elisha dies, and they're in this great battle, and they're just trying to find places to bury people, they throw someone's body in Elisha's grave, and God grants him life, and he stands up on his feet. There's the story in Ezekiel of this vision of the dry bones in the valley, and they all come to life by God's power. So this is not a new thing that God has done, but it is unique in that, as Paul will say in Colossians, Christ is the firstborn, the of those who are resurrected from the dead. And the idea of this is basically, if God's power raised Christ, that's the hope of the resurrection for us as well. 1 Corinthians 15 goes into that in great detail. But that's not the only thing that God's power accomplished. That's the one that we tend to be most familiar with. But what's the other thing that God's power accomplished in connection with Christ? He seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places above rule, authority, power, dominion, every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Now, theologians will argue about what this means because there's a school of thought that says Christ is, has the right to rule but is not presently ruling, but, and then there's a school of thought that says he is presently ruling 
but not visibly over everything. We don't necessarily need to answer those controversies in order to see the point of what Paul is saying, which is this. Jesus was dead, and now he's alive. Philippians 2, Jesus was humbled, and now he's exalted. And what made both of those things possible? God's power. What else does God's power secure? Verse 22, he put all things in subjection under his feet, so everything is now under Christ. And not only that, gave him his head over all things to the church. Everything is under Christ. Specifically, Christ is over the church. Verse 23, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Again, the question is, does the church add something to Christ that he would not have otherwise? Or is it better to say the church is filled with, saturated by, possessed by Christ? And I think it's probably that second sense. When it's the fullness of him who fills all in all, Christ is both the head over the church and the one who fills and empowers and works through the church. So, what does Paul want the Ephesians to know? Paul wants the Ephesians to know what God has done for them in salvation. Specifically, that they have hope and that they look forward to an inheritance, but he also wants them to know how it's brought about, and that's by God's power. He doesn't really get to the why he prays this for them in Ephesians, at least not in this end of chapter 1. He gets to it much more quickly in Colossians, so turn back over there for me, and then I'll show you the parallel in Ephesians. Look at Colossians 1, 9, and 9 through 12. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. The same thing Paul prayed basically for the Ephesians. And then he gives the why fairly quickly to the Colossians so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Strengthen with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Okay, so does Paul say something similar in Ephesians? Turn back over to Ephesians, but turn to Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4.1 Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Paul's laying the foundation here in Ephesians chapter 1 that's going to get to the so what and the how should we live in light of it starting in chapter 4. But we're not there yet. So there's this, there's this gap in chapter 2 where he talks about you are dead, now you're alive. You were enemies, Jews and Gentiles, but now you're one in Christ. Chapter 3, there's this mystery of the stewardship that God's given to Paul and then this great outpouring of praise at the end of chapter 3 and then finally gets to chapter 4 and verse 1 and says, the point of me saying all these things to you about your salvation is so that you'll walk worthy. But since that's not in our text, 
is there an application that we should take away from this text with regard to just simply what we see in verses 15 through 23? Last week, we had this idea that we ought to bless or exalt or praise God in light of the blessings of salvation that he's revealed, right? What do we see here? I think that this sets for us a model and example of the way that we ought to pray. So come back to the questions I asked you at the beginning. What did Paul pray for, and what was he excited about God doing? And so I would, I would ask you this. Do you pray for people around you that they would be amazed and aware of all that God has done for them in connection with salvation? It's what we should do, right? something that we often pray for other people, right? We pray for any manner of other things, which are all good things too, generally speaking, but do we pray for people around us to be overcome by the glory of the salvation that God has granted to them? To see the hope that God has given, to see the inheritance that God has promised, to see the power that brings all these things about, do you pray that for other people around you? And leading to that prayer and flowing out of that prayer, are you rejoicing in the faith and love of fellow believers? Because I think that that would be a right and proper thing for us to do, to rejoice in the faith and love that we see evident in the lives of fellow Christians around us. We may selfishly rejoice when people around us say things that benefit us personally. We may temporarily rejoice when things that, that meet their here and now needs sort of all come together, right? But are we rejoicing in faith and in love of those around us? And maybe we do. But if not, think that we should. And certainly we have to be careful because the example of what someone does does not bear quite the same weight as when there's a specific command and you ought to do this, right? But the fact that Paul doesn't just do it here, but he does it here, and he does it for the Colossians, and he does it somewhat similarly for the Thessalonians, and perhaps in other places I'm not thinking of at the moment, the fact that this example is repeated for us several times in Paul's letters, I think ought to give it a little bit more weight that this is a good pattern and example for us to follow as well. So, main application, are you rejoicing in the faith of others? What sort of things are you praying for them about? Kind of a secondary thing is, if you're praying that for other people and rejoicing that for other people, what about in your own heart and life? Do you have faith? When I say do you have faith, I don't mean are you a person of faith. That's sort of a vague, meaningless phrase that gets tossed around in our society. You could have faith in Allah. You could have faith in Buddha. You could have faith in the American dream. You're a person of faith, right? The 
only faith that's going to do you any good is faith in Jesus Christ. I am a sinner, but Jesus has paid the penalty for that sin and trusted in him for alone for salvation. That's the sort of faith that we're talking about. If you have that faith, that's sort of the starting point. But that faith then ought to spill out in specific, concrete, visible ways toward the people around you. Because you can say that you have faith, but how do people know that you have faith? Think about what we looked at in the book of James. You say you have faith apart from works, but I will show you my faith by my works. What's the reason? Don't show favoritism. Show love. Don't live selfishly. Show love. So, as James explained it, way that people know that you have faith is by your outward actions that show the love that God has created in your heart to show those around you. So, pray for, rejoice that other people have faith and love, but make sure that you also have faith and love by God's grace, right? And pray for other people to be amazed by the salvation that God has brought about. But if everybody else in the church is amazed by the salvation that God has brought about, but it does nothing to stir your heart and soul. Why am I not What are some of the reasons this might not stir your heart and soul? Peter says, because you've become short-sighted and forgotten all the things that God's done for you. Other places of scripture it says, because sin has blinded you to the glory of God. And those are probably the two main reasons. for you to be excited that God's working in other people and praying for God to work in other people and you've professed that you have faith and you've showed some signs of love but if you're not excited about this work what in your heart is the obstacle that prevents you from seeing God work this way in your life not just in other people's lives so when we come to a passage like this, don't get hung up in technicalities of what things you might read in the margin of study Bibles or commentaries or those sorts of things. Study them, understand them, think about them, yes. But see, the main point of what is going on here is God's done a work in the Ephesians, and that's a reason to rejoice. God has more work yet to do in them, and that's something to pray for. So rejoice when God's doing work in other people. Pray for him to add to that work. Make sure that he's done that work in your life, and be able to rejoice for the work he has yet to do in you as well. Let's pray. Lord, this short passage covers many important truths. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to never get at a point where we even genuinely can be excited about something you're doing in someone else and be perfectly fine with the fact that our own hearts are cold and, and not stirred by these same amazing truths. 
Help us in the word of, words of Hebrews to lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily trips us up and to run with patience the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him despised the cross and endured the shame and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. And because Christ has gone before us and because you have sustained the saints that have also lived and died in faith before us, we can have confidence that you will work in us as well. We ask that you would do this this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.